There's a book behind me right now called The Alchemy of Finance by George Soros. And basically, I can sum up the book in one word, which is everything is reflexive. That didn't sound like one word, Avi. Uh, Two words. Everything. Reflexivity. One word. Welcome back to another episode of the 1000X Podcast. We are excited to have you. We are recording this at the exact same moment that Bitcoin has decided to send. We are trading 29.8 and both Joan and I are extremely happy right now and I hope you guys are too. There's a lot to talk about on today's podcast. A lot has happened in the markets and there are a lot of opportunities that have presented themselves. And I think the last two weeks since our Novogratz podcast, we've done a pretty good job at navigating the turn. And so happy to talk to you about what's happened and what we think is going to happen over the next uh, few weeks. So without further ado, let's dive in. Jonah, how's it? How's it been? Where are you right now? I'm in France. Hello from France. Bonjour. Um, Sorry to hear broadcasting live from a, from a crappy laptop with some trees in the background. It's, um, the price of Bitcoin is is the same here in France. It's uh, almost thirty thousand, but it's, you know, a little farther away in euros. Um, I kind of hope we hit thirty k in the middle of the podcast, which seems possible. We're flirting with it. If we hit thirty k in the middle in the middle of the podcast, I think we should. Uh, I think we should do is just a little toast, and then we should sell everything that we own. Yeah, because <laughs> this this the has moment, been the moment you toast the price. I think you just got to get out. It's over. Yeah. I mean, this is an emotional roller coaster. Two weeks ago, we were talking to Novogratz. We asked him, hey, you know, why, why, did, you, why did you start a company instead of just holding you know, length in your PA? And he was like, oh, great question. You know, it, it's stressful times for people who run crypto businesses right now. Um, but the sentiment can shift quickly. You know, two, two weeks ago, it was all about the SEC dropping lawsuits on Coinbase and Binance. Uh, it looked like we were primed for a washout lower. Avi, what did the uh, what did the short interest look like um, at that time? I mean, at the at the lows before we squeezed higher, we were looking at more than a billion dollars of shorts that had opened billion? on the USD. Yeah, a billion of shorts that had opened on the USDT contracts, and that's actually what if you remember on the on the last podcast with Novo. We were both talking about lifting August and September calls on BTC. And that was one of the reasons that I ended up doing that is because when you have vol below 40 and you have a billion dollars of shorts that have entered the market, that is recipe for disaster for those shorts and recipe for volatility. And so ended up just, you know, riding through. We actually, we haven't, we haven't sold We haven't sold any calls yet. Uh, I think we're going to keep these keep these for a bit. You can sell some deltas, keep your calls, trade it around a little bit. That's yeah, that and works. that's that that that's probably what we end up doing because uh, most of them. I mean, we had some thirties, but we also uh, have some thirty fives and thirty sixes. And I want I want to keep the convexity there. I think that vol is actually still really low. One of the things that I like to remind people is that vol is often the most mispriced post a large move. So you you can make an argument that vol is more mispriced now at 50 than it was at 40 when we were at the lows uh, because we've already seen such a large move and 30K is very likely to be 
is much more likely than 25k to be an unstable price right it's very much you know more common for bitcoin to oscillate wildly after it's already oscillated wildly than for it to begin to oscillate wildly and so you can make a uh, make make a case that vol here actually makes sense i mean one one thing that i was looking at is if you want to take off some length you could sell deltas but you can also start buying buying some puts cuz puts are still pretty cheap uh, I mean, if you if you want to bet, you could sell right? call spreads too. Roll your strikes up. Yeah, that's true. Could sell could sell call spreads. Although the actually actually that I I hadn't looked at that, but that actually looks really nice because it it looks like uh, we've got some we've got some points on the spread now, whereas before the the surface is pretty flat. Yep. I mean, I think what's what's interesting here. You you brought up a really good point about options, and I was an options specialist for over a decade. I. That's, that was the, the primary way that I expressed views, and I really dug deep into it. You, you made a very insightful point, which I agree with, which is options are often the most mispriced after large moves. And the way that they get mispriced is something that's kind of worth delving into, because what you just described, where vol still seems a bit too low, um, often it's the other way. You get a big move and vol explodes, and then it's just a screaming sale, right? Uh, like, for example... The big trade in commodities this year has been to sell overpriced options, which exploded after last year's craziness across gas, oil, a bunch of other markets. So vol remained overvalued for far too long. And that's usually what happens after there's excitement in a market, after you're in a paradigm of, oh my God, it's a super cycle. Wait, no, it's not. Or wow, this thing's going to zero. Oh wait, no, it's not. It's just going to mean revert again. That's those are those are when you know when you have eyeballs on an asset class vol remains too high for too long after a big move. Meanwhile, in crypto, I think people just threw in the towel. Like the market stopped moving. The SEC came in and started, you know, firing shots. And I think a lot of institutional players who are more savvy at valuing options than perhaps your average retail investor, because options are complicated and it's not, it's not, you know, math they teach you in high school. Um, you know, the opposite happened, right? You had some huge opportunities, some huge moves, some, you know, some lots of coiled springs in the market, and yet the cheapest volatility ever, uh, implied volatility ever, which, you know, you could go and buy. Um, and, you know, as, as a wise trader once told me, you never buy options unless you expect the market to move fast. Sounds so obvious, but a lot of people miss it. And markets move fast when you get a short squeeze. Seems like that's what yeah. happened. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think that that's really what you're looking for when, I mean, the really there there are two things that I look for when I'm buying when I'm buying these types of buying these types of calls. One is I'm just looking for why I think. Well, you have to always frame with every trade, but it's it's sometimes very very straightforward with options is why I think it's mispriced. Like why do I think I have why do I think I have edge here, and specifically with this most recent bout. It was because there's a natural supply of sellers in the options market, and who was selling? Right, so the miners, it's people looking for yield on their Bitcoin. People that run, you know, there are these billion-dollar structured products out there, and we've talked about all this, so I don't necessarily need to rehash it uh, in in depth. But there's a natural supply, and so when the bid side dries up, when there are no institutional funds in, uh, and when there are no when there's no retail coming in to cross cross the spread, you just get this vol depression, and then when you see just an insane amount of shorts in the market, you kind of you kind of have to start lifting. I mean, it's funny. I think that six out of six times, and I can 
I might tweet out a graph with this. One of my analysts put it together. Within 48 to 72 hours of FUD, we've generally seen the bottom in terms of actual price on Bitcoin, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I think what's been happening is that there seems to be some leakage of news and you get this weird movement in the markets prior to the actual headlines dropping where you, you stuff just starts to trade really weirdly. And I think five or six times this year, I've turned to Joe, my partner, and I've said, the market's trading like there's news coming out. And then within two days, news has come out. It's very, very, very odd, very, very odd trade, very odd trading dynamic. Uh, and then, so what ends up happening is then very quickly, a lot of it gets priced in because the only people left in this market that are actually trading are people that pay attention to these types of headlines. And that generally provides a good opportunity to come in and actually buy. And so it's, it's been a pretty high hit rate and we ran it again this time, you know, uh, in, in our trading, just coming in there post FUD, post SEC, scooping up. Uh, you know, scooping up what the what the market what the market will give us, and that's been a pretty consistent and solid and solid trade. I had kind of a different take on that from you. Um, I came to the same conclusion, but a very different way. I mean, I do not, unlike you, I do not have a good track record of buying FUD. Um, because often FUD, at least you know, again, I, I'm I'm newer to this market, so the definition of FUD is weird for me. Um, I, no one uses that term in other markets. And furthermore, what constitutes FUD? What constitutes fear, uncertainty, and doubt? Like, I don't have a historical reference point in my mind from having traded this asset class for so long like you have to know whether something's like officially the point where most people are throwing in the towel or whether it's the beginning of this cascade of negative headlines and sentiment uh, souring that's just going to continue and send the price lower and lower. Like Operation Choke Point when it started, um, that could have been a, a FUD moment and it just got worse and worse for a while and the price went lower. Um, for me, what what signaled you know some confidence while we were trading on the lows, and I'm not going to go and pretend that I, I did anything particularly heroic, but um, what signaled confidence is that when the SEC dropped these final two lawsuits against Coinbase and Binance, you know, two very well-resourced um, institutions that you know can afford to fight, they're not just going to fold their hands. Um, you know, just having had a little bit of legal experience in, in my own past from, you know, having been involved in a lawsuit or two, uh, usually when the plaintiff files a lawsuit, this has nothing to do with the SEC, when the plaintiff files a lawsuit, that's their moment of maximum momentum. They've gone and stated all of their claims. They've laid their case out the way that they want it to be viewed. Um, no defense has been formed. The defendant is often, you know, caught off guard. And it's really, you know, just from a textbook law school theoretical perspective, it's hard. It's, you know, that is max momentum. No, the defendant is, has literally been sucker punched. Right. So, um, you know, I, my thesis was that whatever we were pricing at that time, you know, provided, provided there were no new lawsuits or provided the DOJ didn't come in and do something crazy. Um, you know, it couldn't get any, the momentum couldn't have been further against crypto than it was at that particular point. I think that's a really solid way of framing it. And I think that that's accurate. I think the way that I would add on to that, to frame it for myself is when you have an action 
that is somewhat, you know, that that effectively. So with Operation Choke Point, let me walk this back. With Operation Choke Point, which was the SEC coming after altcoins, there was no event as much as there was this ongoing drip of attack. It's like, okay, we we might just continue to see actions by the SEC against a variety of different altcoins. We don't know when that's going to end. It might last for a, a year. It might last for six months. It might last for three months. With the SEC lawsuit against Binance and Coinbase, that was very much so an event. Yeah. Right. It was, it was very much so, hey, here is this thing, this very concrete lawsuit that, I mean, if they've sued Binance and they've sued Coinbase, it doesn't really matter who they sue next. Those are the two largest exchanges in existence right now. I mean, maybe they can sue, you know, a Huobi or OKX, but that's going to be baked into baked into price, yeah, right? Less meaningful. Like, to, your, to your point, is just every action beyond that is less meaningful because they've sort of played their hand. Okay, we're going after the largest ex- exchange offshore. We're going after the largest exchange onshore. So then you start to think, okay, well, how how could it get worse? Yeah. There are a few things that could have made it worse. For example, the DOJ could still come out against Binance, but I actually think that at this point, that's almost baked into price if i see i mean some actionable you know just some something actionable now i'm not saying necessarily do this but this is how i how i would think about it is if a headline comes out uh that you know cz's being perp walked that probably is a three to six percent sell-off and i actually think that that's almost baked in people know that that is a potential i think the worry like if you read twitter the worry about the doj is that Let's say they come after Binance and say, you have done something wrong. Um, they, in theory, have the power to freeze omnibus wallets, right? They can say, this this wallet, this Binance wallet has conducted activity that we don't like. We're going to freeze it while we do our investigation. And again, you know, not this is not my view. It's just you, you read Twitter, you get these sorts of ideas in your head. Um, if customer assets were to be frozen temporarily like this this wouldn't be a you know an sbf situation where assets are are gone this is more like hey a government agency has temporarily halted activity in a certain wallet and customers can't access their funds or they're they're you know frozen for a day or a week then liquidity in the system gets gunked up it's very difficult for institutional trading to take place and you could see some some pretty some pretty terrifying price movements so i think that like the prospect of that is maybe a reason why if you're long gamma and you, you've just you've just ridden it up to 30k from 25k Bitcoin and you're feeling pretty good about yourself, maybe that's the you know a reason to lighten up on some deltas. And but I mean who who knows? This is pure this is just pure idea generation trader talk. What could go wrong? You know, Avi and I are just sitting here, you know, for the listeners just sort of wargaming ideas about what could go wrong what could go right we have no idea right so you know these probability analyses are pretty speak for yourself (laughs) um yeah my whole my whole my whole job my whole job is to have an idea jonah i I never said it's a good idea but i do do have i do have some ideas maybe we should do what don wilson said and model out the probability distributions of you know worst case let me that that's how you're supposed to do everything in trading. Everything's a probability at the end of the day. And then you start to calculate the EV from the probability and then you make decisions and your best, you know, your, your best outcome. That's one of the reasons why I think we were both, you know, so heavily involved in this recent GBTC run up 
is yeah because it it was it was the most post BlackRock filing. It just made the most sense, right? I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna bet, one of the most important things that you can do when you have a trade in your mind or when you have an idea in your mind is how do you best construct that trade? So you might say that oil is going up, or you might think that copper is going up, or you might think that Bitcoin's going up, and then you think of the reasons why it might be going up, and then you think of the best way to construct that trade. So with the grayscale, sorry, with the uh, BlackRock filing, the bet was that Bitcoin has probably reached a point where it's out of sellers in the short term because of the, you know, everybody that's exited on Binance and Coinbase has probably exited by now. And that a lot of buyers might come in because of this prospect of a ETF filing. And so what do you think is going to benefit the most from that? Well, there's this great instrument, GBTC, that if turned into an ETF is currently tr- was currently trading at a 40% discount, which I think is a uh, what, what, what 33% is, what, discount. No? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, I see 30, 32, 33%, 33%. Yeah, and a, a seven, and if so, the price of Bitcoin doesn't move, a 7% rally in the discount uh, when it from 40% to 33% is the equivalent of what is it? I can't do this math, but like 18% rally in the underlying asset. Like it's meaningful. You get this, this is a positively convex asset. It's an option. It's just like an option. You pay a premium, which is that 2% management fee. Uh, and then in in return for that, you get something that sort of... Yeah, and the discount was phenomenal. At, at, a, yeah. at a 40% discount, just going to par with no price movement from Bitcoin means you get a 60, I think 65, 66% return. So... It was just such a great, it was just such a great trade because you know why people are buying. And so when you construct the trade, you think to yourself, all right, I want to be bullish on Bitcoin. I think the crypto market's going up. What is my highest conviction trade here? Well, GBTC seemed like a great one because at and the And we time, did talk about this, by the way. We did talk we did. about it on the podcast. This isn't we us did. just looking back and saying we we bought this one after it rallied. We actually no, talked I mean, about we, it. I think I think I've talked about GBTC on like every single podcast that I'm on because I just I just think it's it was such an it's such an obvious trade at some point, um, you know, especially when it got to 40, 45, 50. It was just such a it was just such an interesting thing to have 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 in the book. Uh, I think ETH is at a, at a 46 percent discount right now. That one's a lot tougher for me, mainly because it, 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 the bet is effectively on the SEC approving a ETF, uh, and and deeming that ETH is not a security, which this SEC might not be overjoyed to do. And also, liquidity getting in and out of that thing is dire. Yeah, to GBTC, you basically stole all my points. That, that's it. I just think that there's a much lower probability of it getting approved as a as an as an ETF than than Bitcoin because of all the concerns around it being being a security. And whatnot, and realistically, you know, I'm no, I'm no, I'm no legal expert, uh, but I can read body language, and the body language of the SEC is that they don't really, uh, you know, believe that anything is uh, other than other than BTC is safe. Uh, you know, and I think they've they pretty much explicitly explicitly said that, and Gensler has said that uh, m- multiple times. Obviously, there's going to be a jurisdictional battle over this because the CFTC has said some things, and the SEC has said some things, but 
anyway, all all of that to say, GBTC was 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 more attractive than ETH because of those because of those reasons, and the um, the move I think has has reflected has reflected that. I think in GBTC you will get the discount selling off again at some point, and the reason why is um, DCG. We don't know if the managers of DCG are economically rational and that's the only thing that they care about or whether they also have reputational, you know, things they want to uphold or, or other sort of incentives in there, other stakeholders. If they're, if they're purely economically rational, in, you know, in theory, the textbook says they should just do nothing because the amount, basically the... Uh, the net asset value of that fund is determined by the number of Bitcoins that are held inside of it. Um, all of that was created when GBTC traded at a premium back in 2021 and before. Now, whatever the price of GBTC does, it doesn't change the amount of fees that, that Grayscale collects. It's really just the price of Bitcoin going up and down that alters their fee. They collect 2% of the Bitcoin held in the fund every year. Um, so in from from their perspective, right? Okay, BlackRock's filing for an ETF. Um, you know, maybe they should feel like they're supposed to compete, but they don't really have to. Even if the price of uh, of GBTC gets fire sold to, down to a discount of minus ninety percent, technically they're still collecting those same fees. And then if that happens because everybody's sick of waiting for Grayscale to apply for an ETF and they just sell all their GBTC into a, a vacuum and rotate into the the BlackRock instrument, which is much better theoretically if it gets approved, um, then Grayscale could go and buy you know, buy their own shares back at a, a massive discount and then convert to an ETF and or or redeem or offer redemptions and earn twenty years worth of twenty years worth of fees in, in one fell swoop. I mean that would be a, a scummy thing to do to your investors, but if you're just purely economically rational, that might actually make sense to do that. So I think there is some risk to the downside there. You know? Yeah. Yes, I think you'd have to I think they they open themselves up to a tremendous amount of class action lawsuits. Uh, yeah, I think so. They don't like. I don't know, but I'm not a lawyer. I don't wow. know whether maybe this is watertight. Who knows? I I by the way, I mean you're right. That's 100 percent correct. That would be if there were no legal risk or reputational risk. My bet is that that probability is extremely low because they're trying they're trying to build a business and have a long term business as opposed to a short term. Uh, you know, as opposed to generating a lot of cash in the in the short term, oh, nobody's doubting that if they care about their reputation yeah. and they want to build a business, they shouldn't do that. Um, it's an interesting thought wanna... experiment. I just think it's highly unlikely. Yeah, for, yeah. I mean, I, and I and especially because they've they've come out there and said so many times that they're attempting to get, uh, you know, they're attempting to trans transform this into into an ETF. That being said, a lot of people have done a lot of worse things in crypto. Also okay, agreed, and let's let's look at the flip side. Let's say you're managing GBTC and BlackRock comes out with a product that's infinitely superior. No matter how hard you try to please your investors, they're still going to sell GBTC and rotate into um, the BlackRock one. Um, let's say they offer redemptions. They just, the golden goose is dead. Their GBTC is going to get redeemed and the assets are going to get rotated into something more, you know. Well, I think I think I think we're 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 also underestimating the laziness of your average investor in this product. I think that there's probably a substantial amount of money money that stays in that ETF, and because it's the largest and because it's the oldest, it might actually end up, and because it already has a ton of volume uh, associated with it, it may actually just end up being the main ETF 
And then that opens up, you know, maybe maybe the assets actually 10x. I mean, one of the nice things about uh, the BlackRock filing is that it gives an air of legitimacy to the asset class and to Bitcoin and to Bitcoin specifically. And the other thing is that if BlackRock's filing for, for an ETF, they probably have a reasonable understanding of the probability that that ETF is going to get approved, which I would place at fairly high considering that there's a decent economic cost to going after uh, and, and producing this ETF. And then once it's approved, the way that BlackRock works is that they incentivize their advisors to go sell their products. And so we're going to have... We're going to have a lot of people trying to sell a Bitcoin ETF, which... Well, let me let me ask you about this. Why do you think it would get approved? I mean, I've heard the same. I've heard that BlackRock wouldn't file for something that they didn't want. You know, they didn't have a high confidence, uh, you know, of, of approval around. And, and obviously, it would be great to have Larry Fink on this podcast telling us why. Maybe we can try to figure that out somehow. If um, an enterprising listener is connected, please reach out. Um, my... My question would be, though, is it really that expensive to file for an ETF? You have to have some lawyers write some some legal documents and submit it to the SEC. Seems almost free to do that, right? It's it's the once you get the approval, then you have to invest in uh, yeah, resources. For for BlackRock, from a top line cost, it's not from a monetary cost. I don't think it's particularly expensive. I think it's more from the you know why why would they go through all the effort to go out there and try to get this try to get this thing approved i think from a you know, from a reputational standpoint they've got a pretty good uh, track record at getting at getting etfs etfs approved uh, i don't think it looks particularly great if they try to get a bitcoin etf approved the sec comes out and says well actually the bitcoin markets are manipulated and then people look at blackrock and they were you trying to get us into a product that's manipulated it just doesn't yeah i see you know it, it just doesn't it, more more expensive from a reputational standpoint than from a monetary standpoint uh, I also think that that's a good point. It, I also think that it's highly likely that a lot of these problems have been are in the process of being. So uh, a portion of the filing had an entire there was an entire section dedicated to market surveillance, and every time that the SEC has rejected a Bitcoin ETF, it has been because they have claimed that the markets are manipulated. I think that the SEC coming after Coinbase and Binance is going to help out tremendously on this point of getting an ETF passed because there's going to be more regulatory oversight around exchanges. Uh, yeah. And second, BlackRock is introducing some market surveillance uh, for, for Bitcoin uh, and that should help uh, with respect to, with respect to, uh, you know, perceived, perceived manipulation in, in the markets. I think the last point can't be understated. People are, once this thing is approved, there are going to be a lot of people out there whose job it is, uh, you know, to, is, is now to sell Bitcoin, a Bitcoin ETF, who probably historically have not really cared that much about Bitcoin. And so, you know, there's, it's just access to a, to, to a lot of capital, which is why I think that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're here, I look at long dated, uh, wingy options as a very, very good trade right now, because it, it's possible, uh, that, you know, it's 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 possible that what ends up happening is that once it once it gets approved, you get it you get a stampede into the asset class. Now, I think that from a trader's perspective, uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a seller of ETH BTC up until the moment the ETF is approved, and then I'm probably lifting as much ETH BTC as I possibly can uh, in the book. 
Uh, you know, I think that ETH is is under a lot of pressure right now because it's lost it's lost the narrative, but that'll shift at some point. Uh, you know, I'm I'm looking at 0.5 to 0.55 as a level to start scooping up ETH for the long term. Interesting. That's uh that's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, I think obviously it's it's exciting to the, the prospect of having registered investment advisors and institutional, you know, BlackRock people going and selling the idea of Bitcoin as a portfolio hedge and a you know a diversification holding. Um, to me, I think what's more interesting about it, the most interesting from the long side is, let's say you're an institution right now. What are your options to get long Bitcoin? Like, let's say that you're you're listening to the Thousand X podcast. You're you're bullish crypto. You're bullish Bitcoin. Really, you don't care about alts. Um, you know, what do you buy? Right, you can buy spot. That's not capital efficient. You want to buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, you have to spend a million dollars and park it somewhere, right? Um, commodity futures, interest rate futures don't work like that. It's much more capital efficient. Okay, fine. So you go buy and you go and buy some Bitcoin futures. Um, you know, they trade 50 to 100 basis points over spot during rallies, and then they just converge back down. So you just keep having this negative roll down that eats up all of your capital efficiency and then some in certain circumstances. You probably, you know, if you're your U.S. domestic finance company or a London finance company, maybe you aren't necessarily comfortable trading perps on finance. Um, there's just or there's GBTC, which is this weird thing that is a little bit hard to understand. The discount is super volatile, and you're not exactly sure what Grayscale, like how much they care about their stakeholders and how much they care about fee collection. You don't know whether they'll convert to an ETF and do you know good faith efforts or not. You even if you assume the best, you have to prepare for the worst or bake in a probability of the worst. There's just not a lot of good ways to get long Bitcoin in 2023, which is crazy. A BlackRock ETF would be like the the gold standard of getting long Bitcoin, and you could do it in a very capital efficient portfolio margin way with the rest of your ETFs. So, um, you know. Capital efficiency is king in a world where interest rates are high. And if you can do it with an ETF uh, issued by someone reputable like BlackRock, who you know isn't just going to get rugged by Washington, D.C., um, you know, that's that's compelling. Well, you know, uh, you know what we haven't been talking about at all on this podcast? Lots we haven't been talking stuff. about alts. Well, zero, zero talk about it because... I, I'm still under the impression that it's just such, it's going to be such a dead period for all. It's, I mean, how many, how many, how many assets you're supposed to buy FUD? But I mean, ever since Operation Choke Point, it's just been like if you chart any major alt, like Polkadot, Algorand, Cardano, all these major. Did you did you, know, you genuinely just lead off with Polkadot? Any ma did you did you actually just do that, Jonah? Polkadot is I, I have looked at the charts. And yes, I did. Polkadot is a particularly smooth downtrend versus ETH. So that's why I started with that one. Like Solana's a little choppier. You'd have a harder time hanging on to, to a short in that one. I mean, I, th I, th I think I think Polkadot is... Uh, I, have n I haven't heard a single thing out of Polkadot. In well, that's just it, right? Look, look at the chart Polkadot versus ETH on CoinGecko or TradingView or something. And yes, I just said CoinGecko too. Um you, no, CoinGecko's good. Uh, you didn't say it's Coin Market Cap. the smoothest downtrend I've ever seen. Um, so, at what point? At what point in alt space do you say, "All right, we're at peak fud. Maybe it's time to buy." Could it be? And you know, going back to regulation and lawsuits and stuff, could it be um, 
there there is a scenario in the distribution where the SEC just straight up loses to Ripple and the judge says XRP is not a security. Then what do alts do? Then then alts probably rip, but I don't think they rip until that happens because yeah. who is you need you need retail to come back in and retail is nowhere to be found. And institutions yeah. are not going to be buying any of this stuff. And the reality yeah. is most of these things aren't that useful. And we've talked about this before on the previous yeah. podcast with with Novo. It's like we're in the show me we're in the show me phase. Most of these things are not there are a couple of things that are obviously useful and then most of them are just trash. And so you get you get to this point where who who is going to be buying them and for and for what reasons? I think a lot of people in 2021 tried to make arguments for I'm buying these for fundamental reasons, but the fundamentals have died on a lot of alts right now and probably aren't coming back. Uh, and so I think that we're we're just we're just in a situation where until you get some sort of positive news about altcoins, you're going to have pockets about outperformance. I think you're going to have specific alts that do well. I think you're going to have, you know, for example, something like a Stacks, which is tied to Bitcoin and regulatory compliant, is actually seems to be right now like how people are choosing to voice alt beta, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, you know, it's like pe- people that would probably normally buy a large swath of alts are kind of sticking to a smaller universe, uh, which I, which makes which makes sense to me. And there're going to be things that you know, are going to be useful. So for example, uh, you look at Arbitrum or you look at Optimism with uh, 4844 coming up and that those alts probably, those alts probably do well, but, and maybe, maybe even something like a, like a Matic. Um, I don't know if you guys saw recently, but their NFT drop with Nike is now integrated into Fortnite. And that seemed to fly under fly under the radar a bit, and Matic has been performing performing pretty badly. But it seems like that you know there's at least some traction that's organically coming up again, uh, and so I think that they're going to be select outperformers. But in aggregate, the complex probably doesn't do particularly well, and you probably just you, you probably don't do well uh, buying alts, for example, as a BTC rotation play. Until either A BTC's at thirty five to forty, in which case retail comes back in, or you get that uh, you know XRP uh, X, XRP headline that comes out that says hey XRP is not a security, and so that sort of game of alt hot potato, that game that you would play in twenty one is probably just going to be very hard to come by right now, and you you probably need to actually go do some work, uh, and then not rely on the work of others because it's very easy to get dumped on by crypto Twitter. Like a lot, a lot yeah. of the times, I I see alts that are talked about on crypto Twitter super actively end up being the worst performers. Altcoins. Yeah. I mean, I I missed the altcoin season. Uh, I I joined this market too late. It's been Bitcoin season since I joined. And honestly, I think you're right. Like you can't you can't just buy a basket like a a market cap weighted basket of altcoins and then hope that works as sort of a BTC rotation trade. Because then literally you are buying things like Polkadot, which are still up there in market cap. Like these these aren't small eco like ecosystems from a market cap perspective, but from a relevance and like potential perspective, they're they're utterly irrelevant. So um you have to be very careful with these things. I think, you know, let's say that there were to be some sort of shift in the regulatory picture where you know, regulators and politicians and lawmakers become a little bit friendlier to the idea, the ethos of an altcoin. Maybe you 
you wouldn't buy the existing basket of alts that were issued in the in the past, but maybe you would buy, you know, suddenly that would bless kind of a new paradigm where startups, entrepreneurs, projects can issue tokens that align incentives potentially better and more easily than these like 100-page uh, startup equity agreements that venture capitalists use to fund software ideas. Like, you know, it, the, the concept of an alt, I think, is really viable. And I think, you know, as Chris Dixon says, it could disrupt the LLC one day. But I don't know if any of, like, to your point, I don't know if any of the current ones will. Oh, I think, I think it 100% will, by the way. I think that the market structure just changes. So one thing that people don't necessarily appreciate is that the SEC coming after altcoins and coming after crypto is not an indictment of crypto because it's very easy to imagine a future where altcoins are just registered as securities. We chatted with our lawyers, um, you know, and and one 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 interesting thing that came up is when you're dealing with custody, uh, there's this concept of a qualified custodian. You want to keep your assets with a with, with a qualified custodian. You want to make sure you're adhering to the rules as best as best as as best as you possibly can. And so, let's say you have a token in a MetaMask or in Fireblocks or in another in another custodian that isn't technically deemed a qualified qualified custodian uh, currently, and you compare that to a secondary transaction on you know in in PE. So you go out there, you buy stock of you buy stock of company A from uh, from an investor who invested in the Series A. Uh, they haven't raised their, their their Series B yet. You go buy that from the uh, fr- from the investor. How do you like? How do you actually own that? Like, what do you actually own? You basically have a bunch of contracts that are signed that may hopefully hold up. And hopefully are totally fine. In most cases, do hold up perfectly fine. But you basically just have like a series. You have an email chain, and you have a bunch of documents with no version control. Uh, and then maybe a ledger. Maybe they use uh, what is it called? Um, uh, Carta. Maybe they have that, right? And so, how do you know that you actually own this thing? And the answer is, it's a little tough. Well, if you own a token in your MetaMask. You verifiably own that thing. You know that you own it. You are the holder of that token. And so there are a lot of things about crypto that just make sense. Like I can very easily foresee a future where all private transactions, all public securities transactions, all of it is represented on the Ethereum blockchain because it just is a better overall system. Uh, What that doesn't mean is that the SEC coming after crypto is killing crypto. It just changes crypto. And so what you end up with is you end up with probably something like an Aave or a Solana or a name insert alt that the SEC has said is a security, just having their token trade publicly as a security. And they just register as a security. Security doesn't mean illegal. It doesn't mean fraud, right? It, It just literally means okay go register go register as a security now there may or may not be some tokens that work as a security and there may or may not be some tokens that don't work as a security and well there are there are definitely tokens that work as a security there are definitely tokens that don't and so some business models will die some business models will adapt some will change it's by no means the end of crypto uh and that this is also something by the way that we've been discussing for a long time is the bifurcation of crypto into the regulated 
KYC institutional type crypto and then the offshore kind of crazy underground market of crypto that's probably going to still exist. And both of those things are going to exist in parallel. Uh, and there's kind of no way to stop that. That's probably a good thing. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, and on, you know, you, you'll end up with, um, you know, that there will be bridges between the two, but those bridges will be heavily regulated. Um, and perhaps those bridges will have lower take rates than the bridges that act between, you know, developing and developed markets right now. Like I, you know, again, I'm just going to go back to commodities because that's, that's my comfort zone. Trading houses like Trafigura and VTOL act as a, you know, an intermediary between places where there's a surplus of, of commodities, which is often, you know, places where JP Morgan won't do business, Iraqi, Kurdistan, um, Chad, right? And then places where there's a deficit, like uh, China, again, where JP Morgan won't do business, or France, where they will, right? And um, frankly, those intermediaries get paid spectacularly to intermediate, and um, because they're sort of regulated and, and legally compliant, I think blockchains sort of fulfill similar functions where you can have you know, you can have certain chains that, that are popular in markets that are less, you know, sort of friendly to American regulatory oversight and other markets, which, which are, you know, very compliant and you'll have very regulated bridges in between the two with, with lower take rates. Um, also, I think that what you mentioned about how some, you know, some tokens will just be securities and that's fine. Couldn't agree more. I mean, you have exchanges like NASDAQ that can list both, both um, securities and non-securities like commodities. So there are already venues that exist that are able to to sort of list both types of products. You could have Bitcoin and you know some some token that's a security on the same exchange. You know, same liquidity. So maybe in terms of the business models, to your point about certain business models changing or getting disrupted, maybe the exchange landscape looks a lot different in ten years as a result of this sort of regulatory picture. Maybe you maybe you end up with uh, I don't know if we. You know, I don't know if it's NASDAQ or EDX, the new Citadel and Fidelity thing, or, or you know, one of these other new venues that really comes and competes with Coinbase and Binance, but it feels like there's there's room for, for a new player or two. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely room room for a new player. And I don't think, by the way, I don't think it's a coincidence that all this regulatory action is coming out, uh, coming out now. Um, oh, look, we just tagged 30K just as a, let's celebrate wow. and sell everything now. <laughs> To drink this glass of water, maybe something I'll, else later. I'll finish. I'll, fi- I'll, fi- I'll finish my coffee. Uh, it's funny, you know. There's a, there's a, there's a book behind me right now called "The Alchemy of Finance" by George Soros, and basically, I can sum up the book in one word, which is everything is reflexive. Uh, uh, it didn't sound like one word, obviously. Which uh, the two words? Everything reflexivity, <laughs> one word, and I think that that's very true right now. Um, you know, the more, the more the Bitcoin goes up, the more that people believe the ETF is going going to go through, and the more people yeah. are going to buy buy Bitcoin, and the more people are going to believe the ETF goes through, and then the more pressure pe- BlackRock is probably going to put on the SEC to get this thing through. Uh, and so it's you know it's a it's sort of a sort of a virtuous virtuous cycle right now. I think the only thing that um, has made me a little bit nervous about this rally is just that uh, the equity markets have gone the opposite way. So NASDAQ, NASDAQ is down 
a per- percent, uh, you know, S and S and P is down down fifty bips, and so I'm keeping a close eye on that. Uh, I will well, say Bitcoin's that Bitcoin's got a lot of catching up to do with the Nasdaq, which just took off and left Bitcoin in the dust. So maybe I a agree, bit which of is why I'm not is baked in, which is why I'm not as worried, but I am keeping an eye on it. Um, with that being said, there are a couple of interesting bullish data points out there that you know we have a macro team that that, that we pay attention to. Uh, every so this happened uh, on the last inflation print in May. If you look out one year from when the Fed funds rate crossed over the uh, last in, inf- inflation print, the one year return from the S and P uh, was thirteen percent, and the two year return is thirty one percent. And that's thirty-one on the two-year. That's thirty-one percent versus an average of, you know, I think fifteen percent over the time period that the study the study was tracked. Uh, and so there is some evidence that um, there's just general bullishness in the in, in in the market in the market to come uh, that we have inflation under control and that this actually sets up for a very nice environment for Bitcoin to tag uh, to tag forty k. Uh, that being said. I'm still a seller on the headline that ETF is approved. I'm definitely, I'm definitely a seller. Try to buy back in a little bit lower. Uh, Me too. On that headline, so you know, all that, all that, all that with a grain of salt. Yeah, pretty cool that it just tagged 30k though in the middle of the podcast. Um, that settles our bet from the previous podcast, uh, several podcasts ago, where we said, "Hey, is it going to hit 24, 31st?" We both said 24, and here we are. Trading 30k, I, I think you're supposed to sell a, a BlackRock ETF approval headline as well, um, to be to be covered a bit lower, like a tactical type trade. I think over time, you know, in general, like in in thinking about pre-positioning for fairly well telegraphed headlines and events, um, I have a fairly bad track record of it in TradFi, but in crypto, it seems to work. And I think the reason why is it's like everybody and their mother knows the halving is coming next year. Everybody's probably right that BlackRock will get their their ETF approval eventually at some point. Sure, you can get long ahead of those things. And in TradFi, you would, and the markets would price it in almost immediately. And then when the event occurs, it's kind of a, a nothing burger. But um, there's there's just not enough capital in crypto to pre-hedge a halving event, right? Think of the amount of dollars it would take to buy Bitcoin up to the net present value of Bitcoin where the amount of minor selling is halved into perpetuity. It's just that amount of capital doesn't exist. The amount of capital that could flow into Bitcoin seamlessly with a BlackRock ETF, like there isn't that amount of capital in Bitcoin right now. So you, you can't, like the market can't, trade to where it should go after all of that buying has taken place. So I think crypto being a small market, relatively speaking, of course, still a mega cap asset, but a small market makes it easier to sort of trade ahead of these events that would normally chop you up in TradFi. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd agree with that. I I also, and this is just reflected across the spectrum uh, in crypto. So there are a couple things that happened that happened in the last week that just reminded me how slow the market is to react to things in crypto. One is that GBTC didn't have its crazy move until the Monday after the BlackRock filing was announced, even though it was. I think it was well, there was a reason for that. There was a which was a big reason for that. Basically, 
you know, you you could make the argument that I made earlier about how GBTC could trade down quite a lot if they act in their own best interest. But what really sent GBTC soaring was the um, rumor, unsubstantiated thus far, but on crypto news sites and crypto Twitter, that uh, Fidelity was going to buy Grayscale or looking to buy Grayscale. Do you, you, th- you think that you think that was a reason? I think it was just a yeah that hit the tape personally. and it just it ripped. I, th- I think it was a little bit of little bit of both. I think it was people reacting slow and then coming in over the learning about it over the weekend and then coming in on Monday and make and making their bets. The other thing that's interesting weekend. is that is that the uh, miners have been... So I talked about this, two, uh, I think, two podcasts ago at this point of how bullish I was on miners for two reasons. One was the transaction fees. Two were the pivots to AI that were coming. By the way, like every miner is now pivoting to AI and people just didn't seem to appreciate this. Hut8 was a great example. They signed a contract to provide HBC on uh, June 14th and then two days later proceeded to rocket. This was actually pre-Bitcoin rocketing. So it's like people just aren't paying attention to the sector at all. Uh, Ira is another miners are pivoting to AI. They just have a lot of chips and they're going to rent them out to people who want to train models with them or... Well, yes, uh, but it's not about the chips because it's a completely different business. Uh, you need specific a specific type of chip uh, and it's more about the facilities and the access to people that know how to... You know, for example, cooling is important in both Bitcoin mining and HPC, they have all of that set up. They have the people that know how to how to build out those services. They have the warehouses and the facilities. They have the power contracts, right? And so the actual product is radically different and requires a decent amount of upfront investment. But the overall operations are very similar. And so a lot of these miners like Hut8, like Iron, like Cypher are going out there and they're saying, hey guys, well, we're just going to repurpose some of our facilities to go provide HBC because it seems like there's a tremendous amount of demand, diversifying the business, generating more revenue. Uh, and HUT, I mean, since I mentioned it, is up a ton, right? And it's like, okay, well, that's kind of interesting because people reacted very slowly, even though all the information was public, all of it was out there, all of it was for the taking. It's just that nobody nobody from TradFi was really looking at the sector. Let's work I through think. the mechanics of this a little bit more for the listeners. Um, and I'm going to pretend it's just for the listeners and not for me, even though I, I'm curious too. Um, okay. So a miner pivots to AI. What does that mean exactly? Let's walk through the sequence of events. They start using some of their people and facilities and hardware to solve... Not hardware. Uh, That's the key. Not hardware. Because the hardware doesn't transfer. ASICs don't. Okay. Like you can't provide HPC with ASICs because ASICs, again, application-specific Okay, so no hardware, it's literally just people in the name. It's, in, it's in the name. It's what does that do for hash rate? What does that do for minor selling? Why, why would that mean less uh, minor selling? It doesn't mean less minor selling. I just think that it's good for the miners. Okay, I see. So you're talking about a trade for minor stocks. You're not saying, hey, oh, yeah, some yeah. resources are going to get diverted away from core activity and there's a, a stock and nope. flow I just think Bitcoin. I, just, I, 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 have, I don't think it has any, any impact on Bitcoin price. Other than it actually, well, it's an equities it play. May, it may have an impact on Bitcoin price in that it makes mining companies healthier, right? If you have divert, you, you have less of this potential forced selling on the way down in the future. That's actually, I, I hadn't actually considered this until you asked this question, but it's possible that miners just don't, like moving forward, miners will get liquidated less often as they become better and more robust businesses. It and would so, make the market healthier 
for sure. And it would also say, it, it would also tell the world like, hey, look, crypto has provided a series of infrastructure plays that are relevant outside of just crypto. Like it, it to me, I think there are a few examples of that in crypto and, and miners being a new one would be, would be good for the space, frankly, as opposed to just this energy. You know, it, it basically says like, there is a market for, you know, energy consuming compute, you know, spe specific, like purpose specific computation facilities outside of just one application. And that one application sort of laid the, the rails for other applications. I think that that would be a healthy narrative, frankly. I think so. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable outtake. Um, yeah, but it's just, you know, the, these, these types of things seem to uh, just take a while. I, th I think the main point is that these, uh, especially the, uh, these tradfi based narratives seem to take a while to really percolate uh, in a yep. way that, I mean, crypto seems to move very quickly because there are a lot of people watching crypto, but in TradFi, yeah, it takes a while to percolate. Um, Jonah, Sounds like there are uh, good opportunities for crypto-focused investors to trade the TradFi-linked assets like these trusts, Grayscale, maybe BlackRock, mining stocks, Coinbase stock, all sorts of opportunity out there. I think so. I think you need. I think you need some tradfi expertise in order to get it right. But you know, I think that is a pretty su substantial source of alpha. So, uh, yeah. Um, I think we've had a really good discussion today. Likewise, always I great to catch up with you. I appreciate Bitcoin deciding to rip through thirty on the. It's still sending. It's. I know. It's, it's still. It's still. It's still sending. What a move! It's what a what a what a good what a good day, yeah. what a good day. I mean, we were all pretty feeling pretty dejected a couple of weeks ago. Now everybody's euphoric again. I know. I hate it. I, I I like I like feeling happy when everybody else is dejected and I can start buying, and then I get really nervous and everybody gets euphoric. So anyway, we'll see how this goes. Good luck out there, everybody. This is uh, this is not investment advice. Crypto is risky. Tokens are risky. Crypto, crypto linked securities are, are risky. So, so be careful, do your own research, and we'll see you again in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>